Uh, you're going to need a, a Bible if you brought one, um, and you can go ahead and open it to Luke chapter 18 this morning. That's the primary text we'll be in, verses 18 to 30. Um, I'm guessing that most of you don't know the name Phineas Gage, but Phineas Gage was a railroad worker in the 1800s, and uh, in 1848, as they were working and kind of blasting parts of a mountain out so they, they could build a railway through, there was an explosion that they weren't expecting, and a three-foot-long bar went through Phineas Gage's skull. Now, the amazing thing about the story is that he actually lived. If you read the account, um, he was actually awake, and they put him on a, a wagon, a horse-drawn wagon, and he was awake the entire time that they took him to the hospital, and he actually lived. But here's the interesting thing. Uh, Phineas Gage, um, if you would ask his friends what his personality was like before the accident, they would say that overall, Phineas was a very gentle man. He had a very gentle, quiet, kind personality, and yet after the accident, uh, his whole personality changed. He became very rude. He became very disrespectful. He found it really hard to hold down a job because he'd always mouth off to his employers and things like that. Uh, and, and what became of this, this, this accident that happened with Phineas Gage, it became a very famous case study on brain damage. And on specifically frontal lobe studies, like before this accident, the vast majority of the medical community thought, well, your frontal lobe is just kind of unused space in your brain. They had no idea what it was for. They were like, I don't think it's for anything. And then Phineas Gage suffers this accident to his frontal lobe, and they went, oh, like your whole personality is in your frontal lobe. So he became a very famous case study. And if you uh, read, you know, medical history or psychology or sociology, they'll use a lot of case studies. They'll say, you know, this happened to this individual, and that event in that individual's life, we're kind of using it as a case study to speak to all of these other issues, right? Phineas Gage, terrible accident, he's now a case study for other people who have frontal lobe damage and personality disorders because of that. We're going to look in the next two weeks at two case studies in the scriptures. Um, we've started last week a series uh, about money. And what we're going to do in the next two weeks is look at two different, very, very wealthy people who encountered Jesus. And we want to look at their lives as a case study. What can we learn from these individuals and how Jesus challenged them and how they responded to those challenges. Last week, if you weren't here, we basically started with some warnings from Jesus about wealth and possessions, right? Last week, Jesus told the crowds, don't let your life become about the abundance of your possessions. Life is not about how much stuff you can get, how much wealth you can have. And now what we're going to do is, in the next two weeks, look at a, 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 a negative case study Here's how a very wealthy person responded negative to, negatively to Jesus, and then a positive case study. Here's how a very wealthy person responded in the right way 
to Jesus and his challenges about money. So this morning we're going to look at a story that's probably very familiar if you've grown up in the church, the story of the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. And basically, um, as we work through the text, there's four true statements from this interaction, just four uh, things that are true about Jesus, about money, about what we do with it that we're going to see um, from this interaction. So if your Bibles are open, uh, Luke chapter 18, we'll start in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So I forgot to say, here's point number one. Okay, thank you, Conda, for putting it up there. Point number one, verses 18 to 19, is this. Here's the true statement. Jesus is good. Therefore, his teaching on money is good. Okay, so we have a rich ruler who comes and he asks Jesus, like a really good question. Now, we don't know much about this guy. Um, In Matthew's gospel, Matthew tells us that he was a young man. And all we're told is that he was a ruler of some kind. Now, most likely he wasn't a Pharisee because Luke, all throughout the gospel, whenever a Pharisee comes, he makes it uh, obvious. He says, this guy's a Pharisee. So he probably wasn't a Pharisee. Maybe he was some kind of ruler in a synagogue. He could have just been a very well-respected member of the community. Maybe, right, he sat on the council for this city or whatever, right, if you can think of just very important people in the community, and we're told that he was wealthy, right? So here's a rich guy who's young and very important, a ruler, and we're told that he asked Jesus a question. And honestly, I mean, this is a really good question to ask Jesus. What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Basically, Jesus, what do I have to do to be saved? Now, I think that uh, he's actually asking a genuine question, Um, You'll see all throughout the Gospels, a lot of times people will come and ask Jesus questions, but they're doing it with like a nefarious undertone, right? Lots of times the Pharisees or the Sadducees will come to Jesus and they'll go, oh, hey, Jesus, we have a question for you. And it's like a trap. They actually don't care about the answer. What's the greatest commandment? Oh, we got him now, right? Or, uh, you know, uh, all these people uh, married a woman and then they died. And so whose wife is she in heaven? And they're, they're like, they're not actually interested in the answer. So, but this guy, from everything we can tell, like he's asking a genuine question. Jesus, what do I have to do to get eternal life? Now, here's what's interesting. He calls Jesus good teacher. Uh, Sometimes I think we just throw titles around, right? And we're going to see by Jesus' answer, I think that's what this guy is doing, that I'm just going to use a term, uh, a title for you, even though I maybe not, I'm not actually respecting you in the way that I, I should. So um, some of you know Ed Teeson, but every time Ed Teeson sees me, he always nods and says, Reverend. And I'm like, yes, everyone should call me Reverend. Um, but if you know me, I'm not very Reverend, so uh, it's a joke. And we're like, yes, bless you, my son, or whatever. And um, uh, actually, I have a, like a master's degree in biblical studies, so you should all start calling me Reverend, Pastor, Master, Eb, okay? Um, but listen, sometimes we just throw titles around, and they actually don't, they don't mean a whole lot, or we don't, uh, we don't, we're not actually, like, when, when Ed says reverend, he's joking, right? And I know that he's joking. And so there's sometimes when we use titles just in a silly way, and it's like, it doesn't actually mean anything. I, I think this rich young ruler comes, and he's saying, good teacher, 
but he doesn't even know Jesus, and he doesn't actually know what he's saying. The reason I know that is look at how Jesus responds in verse 19. Jesus said to him, thank you for giving me the respect. No, what does he say? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Isn't that interesting? It's like Jesus can see through the, the facade of like, I'm giving you a term of respect and great. And, and he's like, wait, why are you calling me good? No one's good except God. Now, here's a verse that uh, lots of people has, have said, aha, see, Jesus isn't God. See, he says, no one's good except God. But, but notice that Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm not good. You shouldn't call me that. He just asks the guy, why are you calling me good? So it's not a statement about Jesus, him not being divine. I actually think it's the opposite. I think the implication that Jesus is saying is that he actually is divine. But this guy doesn't realize who he's talking to. Here's, here's why, okay? So if you look in the Old Testament, actually throughout the whole Bible, the Bible is very clear. Um, human beings inherently are not good, right? We have those debates, are human beings inherently good or evil? Uh, the Bible has settled that debate since the beginning. Human beings are not inherently good. I'll give you two verses. Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1 say the same thing. There is none who does good. Right, Paul quotes this in Romans 3, and he says, no one does good. No one seeks for God. No one is good. So notice, this man then comes up to Jesus, and he says, good teacher. And he, any Jewish person would know, actually, there's, there's nobody who does good. You can't throw that, that word around. And the word good in this verse is the Greek word agathos, and it means intrinsically good, like in, like morally pure, essentially, good in nature. So who's the only one that fits that category? Who is the only one in the universe who is intrinsically morally perfect? God, which is why Jesus says, why are you calling me good? Only God is good, right? What is Jesus saying? Do you realize who you're talking to? You're thrown around this language, and yet you actually are, rich young ruler, talking to the only good person who has ever lived. So is the rich young ruler making a, a faith claim that Jesus is God? Probably not. He's just throwing a title around. And Jesus says, only God is good, and you're calling me good, but you actually don't, you don't know who I am. So here's our first point. Jesus is good, morally perfect, intrinsically good. Therefore, we can trust what he has to say, because he's going to say some things to the rich young ruler that we also, as wealthy people, are going to go, really, Jesus? Is that seriously your advice? Like, listen, if Jesus is just some carpenter that became a rabbi, why on earth should we listen to him? Right? If he's just, and there, like, there's lots of people who think, well, Jesus isn't God, he was just a really good teacher. Okay, but some of the stuff that, that Jesus says, if he's not God himself, why on earth would we listen to that? Hey, you need to pick up your cross every day and crucify yourself. We would go, are you insane? Everyone who doesn't hate his father and his mother and his uh, brother and his sister is unworthy to follow me. And we would go, Jesus, that sounds insane. 
Uh, I have nowhere to lay my head, and so all my followers, if you follow me, you're going to be homeless, essentially. Right? So if Jesus is just some guy who's not intrinsically morally good, then we would go, these sound like teachings of a crazy person. But, right, Jesus is good. That's his whole first point in this, this interaction. He's saying, I alone am good. I am intrinsically morally perfect. And if he's the one true God, then what he teaches us is for our good. So let's say you had some car trouble and your car was making a noise and you were worried it's not running perfectly. Like if you came to me for advice on what you should do, uh, I know nothing about cars. I'd be like, oh, have you rotated your brakes? Or I, like, right? It would be like, I would give you terrible advice, right? Because I'm not a mechanic. I know nothing about cars. Now, when I've had car trouble, uh, you know who I go to? Corland. Because Corlin has experience. He has training in mechanics. And so I'd be like, my car is doing this. What should I do? Now, maybe he's messing with me. And he's like, rotate your tires and turn flip. I don't know. But I trust him, right? Why? Because of who he is and the training he's had. So, right, when we come to Jesus and Jesus says, hey, I want you to sell all your stuff and give to the poor and live generous lives. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, we should just laugh and go, that is crazy, Jesus. Right? What authority do you have to say those kind of things to us? But if he's good, and only God is good, if he is God himself, then when Jesus opens his mouth and speaks, we should go, we need to obey that. <laughs> because it's for our, our good. Jesus knows what he's talking about. He is good, and therefore his teaching is good. So second point, verses 20 to 23, here's another true statement. Our money can quickly become our functional God. Here's what he says in verse 20. Here's Jesus' answer, right? The man said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Now, any evangelist is going to go, oh, you blew it. That's not, Jesus, that's not how you inherit eternal life. By obeying the rules? What are you doing? Right? They would go, no, no. Listen, this, I've had this question asked to me like twice in my life. Someone has come up and literally said, what do I have to do to be saved? This is like a home run question. I'll tell you what you have to do. Trust in God alone. Put your faith in him and you'll be saved. I've never once met an evangelist who's like, you know what you should tell them to do? Obey all the rules. So you go, Jesus, what? Are you actually saying, Jesus, that we inherit eternal life by keeping the rules? That's what it sounds like. Here's his answer, verse 21, the rich ruler. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. Right, since I was a kid, Jesus, those, those five commandments, like he listed five of the ten commandments. Uh, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler says, check Check, 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 check. I've kept them all since I was a kid. So you have to be wondering that maybe this guy is going, I think I'm in. Whoo, if this is it, I'm, I'm in. Here's what Jesus says. When Jesus heard this, verse 22, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But... 
When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Here's what Jesus is doing. Okay, so Jesus is, is uh, presenting the law to this man. And here's, here's what the law is. The law is the standard of perfection. The law is, here is what everything you need to do to be holy and perfect. That's why all throughout the law, in the Old Testament, God says the statement, be holy just like I'm holy. Essentially, be perfect and set apart just like I am. Even uh, Jesus in Matthew 5, 48, in his own teaching, he says, be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. So what the law does is the law, you want to be perfect? Here is the 613 commandments of the law. If you can keep these, you will be perfect. So the whole point of the law, though, is none of us can do it, right? Like James 2.10 says, if you break one commandment of the law, you're guilty of all of it. So someone could go, Jesus, I've got 612. I only broke one commandment. And what the scripture says is, you're guilty of all of it. So what's the point of the law? The point of the law is to say, Here's what moral perfection looks like, and no one can do it. So we're left to, this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to read the law and go, oh, I can't do it. If only there was someone who could keep all these commands for me. Right? So is salvation by works? Yes. And you're like, uh, (laughs) but whose works? Right, so Jesus comes, and what is, see, a lot of times we focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus, which we should. That is our salvation. But his perfect life is then given to us. So we look at the law, and we go, I can't keep the law. And God's like, you're right, you can't. But look, my son kept the law perfectly, and now I'm actually going to give that to you. It's called imputed righteousness. It's righteousness that we don't earn, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become what? The righteousness of God. So this is why the life of Jesus is just as important. He dies to pay for our sins. He is raised from the dead to guarantee that. And then Jesus takes your sin, your mess, your brokenness, and then he says, I'm going to give you my perfect life. So then, when it's like, here's the standard of the law, right? Are you perfect? We can go, yes, in Christ, I am. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus gives us his righteousness. So what's, what does this have to do with the ruler? What Jesus, really, Jesus is setting up the ruler. He's like, well, you know what the commandments are, right? And he lists five of them. But the ruler had broken the very first commandment. And actually, he's probably broken the 10th commandment, which is don't covet. So here's the first commandment, Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. God starts the Ten Commandments this way. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And when Jesus confronted the man on what his God was, you got to sell all your stuff, give all your money away to the poor, and then follow me. What happened? The man left sad. I think that wealth had become his identity, his power, his sense of meaning. He was keeping these other commandments, but he was actually not worshiping God. 
Well, who, who was his God? Money. So outwardly, yeah, man, I've kept all these rules since I was a kid, Jesus. Well, actually, you haven't. You've broken the first commandment. <laughs> so I think Jesus' strategy as he, as he lists commandments, and just, what he's doing is he's taking the man's focus off of external conformity to the law. Look at how good, look at my record. And then he's actually turning it in and saying, ooh, you actually need to examine your own heart. So here's the danger for us. Uh, Money can very quickly become our functional God. That's the second true statement. You can externally keep the commandments while functionally worshiping money as your God. And here's, here's why this is so challenging. If you're not careful, money very easily becomes your source of joy. Money dupes you into believing that if you have more of it and if you have enough of it, you won't need anything. Like, think of that phrase. If I have enough money, I won't need anything. Anything? Like, including Jesus? And so money is so deceptive because it thinks, or or rather we think, because it gives us, I heard one pastor say, money and possessions give you whooshes. Where you buy something and there's this whoosh of happiness and money tricks you into thinking, if I just have enough whooshes, I'll be satisfied. Um, when we were on sabbatical, we were in San Diego for about a month and my wife's birthday was uh, during that month. And so we were only like a two-hour drive to Disneyland. And so we said, for your birthday, we're going to go to downtown Disney where you, you don't have to pay to get into downtown Disney. Praise God. Uh, and you can walk around and there's restaurants and things like that. So I had the idea. I'm like, okay, for fun, to celebrate Mama's birthday, today is a yes day. And I'm like, but because it's Disneyland, you get two yeses. Because if you had unlimited yeses, we wouldn't have money to come back home. Uh, so it was all the kids are like, oh, what, two yeses? So I'm like, if you see ice cream and you're like, can I have this ice cream? I'll say yes. Isn't that so much fun to celebrate mom's birthday? And so it was, it was a really fun day, right? And the kids got a few, I don't even remember what they got. They got a few souvenirs and they have a churro and all that kind of stuff. But like a day of whooshes where you're like, man, this is fun. But listen, listen, it was fun. But it was also deceptive. And I could see how very easily it can become, man, I just need some more. Man, do you remember that? I need some whooshes. Like, listen, one of their bubble makers is already broken and thrown out. Like, it doesn't last, right? But that's how money is so deceptive. Because it's like, I need that feeling again. It was so fun. What a fun day. And I just got to chase that feeling again. And so, listen, the entire marketing industry in our culture is built on that, that you will fall for the whoosh. It is. Any commercial that you watch, any advertisement is, this new thing will satisfy you. You have the old version of that? Oh my goodness. How are you living? Right? And I, t- I gave examples last time of vehicles, and we do that, and like phones are just s- such an obvious scam, but we fall for it. And listen, you get the new iPhone that comes out, and yes, for a moment, it gives you a whoosh, and you go, I'm happy. Look at how amazing this is, and look at the camera, and look at the, the storage, and look at that, but it never lasts. 
And you go, I'm actually not happy with this phone anymore. Oh, I wish it did this. And then the next one comes out, and it's like, this has, a, you, has auto dialed to God. You can talk to God. And you're like, whoa, it's amazing. And just whoosh, and I feel joy and happiness. And then inevitably, it will disappoint you. And then that ha- we start to worship money because it gives me those temporary feelings of euphoria. This is why, literally, the, the overall theme of money in the entire Bible, cover to cover, the overall message with money is be careful. The overall message is not money is sinful. The overall message in the Bible time and time and time and time again, cover to cover, is be very careful with money. Um, Ecclesiastes 5.10 Right, The preacher reminds us, and here is a man that had all the money that you could want in the entire world. And he says, he who loves money, uh, it should actually say, (laughs) that's a typo, will not be satisfied with money. (laughs) Yikes. Uh, Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. He who loves money will not be satisfied. You'll never be satisfied. You won't. You are chasing the wind. I think this man, that this case study, money was his God. And so when Jesus said, actually, you have to get rid of the God that you worship and come follow me, he left sad. He said, I can't, I, I can't give it up. I mean, Jesus is very blunt. Like in Matthew 6, uh, he, he, he says it as bluntly as you can say it. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I mean, there's there's no Greek that makes it different than it sounds. I mean, Jesus is flat out saying, it is impossible for you to serve and worship God and try and serve and worship money at the same time. You can't do it. So money becomes our our God, and, and the question then is, if you actually lost everything, would Jesus be enough? Like everything. Like if you lost everything, would you be able to say, you know what, I have Jesus, and that's actually enough for me? This is why the Bible says, be on guard. Be very careful with money because you'll be surprised how quickly it it becomes the God that we worship. Truth number three, verses 24 to 27. Again, I tried to word this in a way that doesn't sound like it sounds, but there's no way to word it any differently than what Jesus says. It is hard for a rich person to be a Christian. So this is what Jesus says. Jesus, verse 24, seeing that he had become sad said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Um, it's, it's hard for rich people to make it into the kingdom. And listen, like I said, for years, uh, different preachers and scholars have tried to soften this. It can't, it can't mean what it sounds like it means. And so some of you may have heard, oh, I discovered that there's an entrance into Jerusalem, and they used to call it the eye of the needle. 
and camels could get through the entrance as long as they went on their knees. And so all we have to do as rich people is get on our knees. Here's the problem. Archaeologically and historically, there's no such gate. There is no entrance into Jerusalem that has ever been called the eye of the needle. It doesn't exist. And some preacher 50 years ago said that and said, that sounds pretty good, right? Camels can fit through the eyes of the needle because it's a gate in Jerusalem, but it's not. And some have, some have said, well, the word for camel can also just mean like a rope. So maybe, you know, if I have a, a needle and I have a thick rope, I mean, if I you know, wet it down and twist it and I, I could get it through. But that's just not true. Jesus is meant, meaning for us to picture a needle and a massive camel and saying, get the camel through the needle. It is impossible is what he's saying. And yet we try, we try to go, that, that can't be what Jesus means. Is Jesus good? Is his teaching good? Right, L- listen, even last week I've had conversations with you that uh, it just made you uncomfortable. You're like, well, what, what, I'm supposed to get rid of all my stuff? That can't be what Jesus means. And we just wrestle with it, right? So then we talk about, well, you know, you can tithe to the church. Well, how am I supposed to tithe if I don't have anything, Andrew? Right? And we do that because we go, is, is what Jesus says, is this actually the best for me? So, I mean, I mean, like, this is a hard saying. I am one of the wealthy. Anyone who is in North America is rich. And so Jesus is saying, it's really hard for you to be a Christian. Ultimately, apart from a miracle of God, Because he says, like, this is impossible for man, but anything's possible with God. So listen, he's not writing off if if your income tax statement, if your T4 is over this amount, you can't come in. No, but he's saying, left to yourself, you won't make it. Anything's possible with God. That's why people in the crowds, verse 26, when they heard that saying, this is how they responded. Well, then who can be saved? Like, Jesus, do you realize what you're saying? Here's why. In their culture, wealth was a sign of God's favor. If you're rich, it means you're doing something right. Uh, Even think of the prosperity gospel today. If you're rich, it means God is blessing you. And then Jesus comes along and says, it's hard for rich people to make it. And we go, wait a sec. Well, then who can be saved? Isn't the fact that I'm rich a sign that you want me to be rich, Jesus? Here's what I think he means. If you read the rest of Luke 18, there is, there's a theme that exists in the whole chapter. If you read verses 9 to 14, Jesus tells a parable in Luke 18 of a, 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 a tax collector and a Pharisee. If you remember the story, the Pharisee is standing up and going, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like all these sinners. I'm such a good person. And the tax collector's in the corner, can't even lift his eyes, and he's beating his chest going, have mercy on me, a sinner. Who's the guy that makes it? Then the next story is little kids are coming to Jesus. And in that day, little kids, I don't want to see them or hear them, right? We just kind of push them to the side. They're annoying, and you're like, well. uh, But the kids are coming, and what do the disciples do? The disciples are like, get out of here. You're bothering Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Do you know who gets the kingdom? The children. And you go, well, wait, that's. Then you flip ahead 
to verses 35 to 43, and there's a blind man who is crying out to Jesus, have mercy on me, son of David. And the disciples are going, shh, quiet, you're bothering him. Who's the guy that makes it? So all through chapter 18, what Luke is showing us, it is the losers who make it into the kingdom. And by losers, I mean people who come to Jesus and go, man, Jesus, I have nothing. I can't even even look up to heaven. I'm looking down at the ground and just saying, please, God, have mercy on me. Kids who come running to Jesus, they bring nothing to the table. And And Luke's whole point is, who are the ones that make it into the kingdom? The poor in spirit. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Right? Broad is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way to eternal life, and few find it. Here's why. Here's what Jesus is saying. Why is it so hard for a wealthy person to make it into his kingdom? Because you and I, we come to Jesus, and our arms are full with all of our stuff, and our money, and our nest eggs, and our vehicles, and our houses, and all of our stuff that we come to Jesus with. And Jesus says, hey, I want to give you the kingdom. And we go, ah, well, my arms are already kind of full, Jesus. Maybe, maybe I'll have room for your kingdom. But we just come to Jesus with all of our stuff. And so Jesus says, no wonder it's hard. Because we are so self-reliable, I can go and buy whatever I want. I can buy myself happiness temporarily, and I can do this, and I can do that. And and Jesus says, no wonder it's hard for rich people. But praise God, right, he doesn't leave it there. He says, well, what's impossible with man? Cramming a, a camel through the eye of a needle? It's possible. But with God, all things are possible. So we should go, praise God, that God actually brings us to the end of ourselves. And sometimes he's going to ask you, like he asked the rich young ruler, you need to get rid of some of the stuff you're holding on to, and then you can make it into my kingdom. But praise God that the Holy Spirit does that, right? He doesn't leave anyone over a certain socioeconomic standard to go, well, it's hopeless for them. No, by the power of his spirit, it's possible for us. Fourth true statement, Um, you cannot outgive God. Verse 28 to 30, uh, and Peter said, I love Peter, see, we have left our homes and followed you. Isn't that great? Jesus is like, it's hard for rich people to make it into the kingdom. And Peter's like, well, I left some stuff behind, Jesus. What about me? I mean, Peter's all of us. We would all say that as we're inwardly looking, going like, oh, man, this is hard. Well, Jesus, I left some stuff. Can I come? And that's Peter. He says, we've left homes, and we followed you. And here's what Jesus says, verse 29. He said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Like, look at what Jesus says. If, if you sacrifice for his kingdom, Jesus says, you will receive many times more in this life and in the age to come. Now, again, here's a verse 
that is often completely removed from the context and said, see, if you sacrifice for Jesus, you get all the stuff. Sow your seed and then sow $100 and God has to give you $1,000. He says, he says he'll give you many more times. What, what primarily is Jesus using as an example of what people are sacrificing? Primarily, it's relationships, is it not? Yes, you leave your house, but if you decide to follow Jesus, your relationships might suffer. Your wife, your brothers, your parents, your children, you, you might lose those things for the kingdom. And he says, but you'll receive many more times. What does he mean by this? He means when you follow Jesus and you sacrifice and sometimes your relationships are broken and sometimes you're, you're kicked out of your home or whatever, you, as you become a follower of Jesus and you walk into his kingdom, you now have thousands of brothers and sisters. You have a family even if your earthly family says, you're a follower of Jesus, we want nothing to do with you. You have a family now. And you have provision, right? Acts 2, all who believed were together. They sold their possessions. They gave it to anyone who had need. They broke bread in their homes. Acts 4, they were one heart and soul. They had everything in common. What Jesus is saying is, when you sacrifice for the kingdom, you are now welcomed into a family of brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and grandmas and grandmas that are going to take care of you. I know that many of you have seen this in action. Like in our own lives, we've seen this over and over and over and over. When I was interning at that church that I told you about making $500 a month, um, there was a dear old lady in the church, Ruth, who uh, she was a recent widow and living by herself. And she said, listen, Andrew, I have a massive basement. Why don't you just come live in the basement? You can have the whole basement. I'm not going to charge you anything for rent. And I just went like, like, you don't even know me. <laughs> and yet here's, I, I received much more back than I've given. And like this woman, I, uh, you know, 21-year-old me and 75-year-old Ruth, we would have dinners together. She cooked food for me. She was like a grandma. Like, listen, when we moved here, uh, Molly's family lives 1,300 kilometers, or my family, rather, lives 1,300 kilometers away, and Molly's family lives 2,000 kilometers away. And we moved up here, and it was like, we don't know anybody. And I thought in my mind, this is not going to last long, because we don't have any family, more so for my wife. I'm like, I can deal with not having my family. <laughs> but you know what, do you know what happened when we moved here? God provided way more than we sacrificed. And my kids have Uncle Don and Auntie Joy. And my kids have uh, Grandpa Dave and Grandma Elsie. And, and we have brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles far more than we've sacrificed. That's what Jesus is getting. You can't outgive God. But God, what if I give away some of my wealth? He's obviously going to take care of you. Like, if I come to Jesus, what if he asks me to sacrifice? It's not an if. He will ask you to sacrifice. Like, it's a guarantee. Following Jesus means a life of sacrifice. But it is the path to eternal life, and it's the path to abundance in this life. More than you'll ever need. Jesus says, if you sacrifice for the kingdom, you're going to receive back way more than you give. So you can't, don't think that you can outgive God. You can't. 
Uh, I find it interesting that in Mark's account of this story, because listen, we, we, see, we hear words of Jesus, and I think sometimes we think, ah, oh, he's just trying to ruin our lives. <laughs> so now I've got to get rid of some of my stuff, and I, why is he being so harsh with me? And, 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 we, and we think that. Like, we, we look at the rich young ruler, and we're like, man, that seems really harsh, Jesus. And you let him walk away sad? You don't come to him and go, okay, okay, wait, 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 wait. Just give away half your stuff. Then will you follow me? Like, he lets him leave. But in Mark's account of the gospel, this is what it says, Mark 10, 21. After the man is sad and walks away, it says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus doesn't say these things because he doesn't love us. Jesus looked at this man and knew money is going to eat your soul. So I have to help you get rid of it or it's going to consume you. Like he loved this rich young ruler enough to be like, you are worshiping money and it's going to take you to hell. You got to get rid of it and then come and follow me. Jesus calls us to hard things because he loves us. Because he knows, oh man, our hearts are so fickle. And if I don't call you to a life of sacrifice and generosity and giving, the the lure of money is going to destroy you. So here's the application for us. Uh, Just to ask yourself, is money your functional God? In the midst of living a good life and obeying, right? Check, 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 check. I'm doing all the right things. Are you actually worshiping money? And, and a, a good question to ask is, if I actually lost all of it, would I still be satisfied with just Jesus? Right, again, I want to I caution you. Like, the application is not, now all of us must literally sell everything and give it all away. I don't think that's the application. Right? This is a case study. We're meant to learn some principles from it. But are you worshiping God? Do you, do you defend your use of money? Do you get angry when people question how you're using your money? If you literally lost all of your money, would you still be satisfied with Jesus? And, and do you want to know what the antidote to greed is and covetousness? The antidote is Generosity. Listen, I've been a pastor for like over 15 years. Here's why I know this is a blind spot for us. No one in 15 years of ministry has ever come to me and said, Andrew, I think I'm too greedy. They've come with all sorts of other stuff. But honestly, this is meant to like point the mirror back at us because no one thinks they're greedy. We're like, no, that's not me. And the antidote to greed and covetousness and a desire to have more and more and more is, is generosity. It actually, it, it, it goes against the inclination for more when you say, I'm going to actually just live, I'm going to live life with an open hand and I'm going to help people and I'm going to give stuff away and I'm going to be generous with my money. That, that destroys greed. But here's, here's the truth about all gods in our lives, all idols, you can't just uproot it and then just leave it because it inevitably grows back. 
right? John Calvin said, our heart is a perpetual idol factory. It just keeps producing idols. So when you uproot the idol of greed and covetousness and money, you have to plant something else there. And what you must plant there is the truth of the gospel, that Jesus, though he was rich, for your sake became poor. Like that Jesus gave away everything to purchase your salvation. So, yeah, then I, I can give away some of my stuff. Look, Jesus gave away everything. And then it's the truth of the gospel that is planted in your heart that then these idols, they don't have anywhere to grow because your heart is full of the death and resurrection of Jesus and his life given for you. And then you begin to go, I want to obey what my teacher is saying. He is a good teacher. He knows what's best for me. So would we learn from this case study, right, that if Jesus asks things of us, that we wouldn't be like the rich young ruler and just walk away sad because we just love our wealth. So God, I thank you that you are um, very patient with us, and I know um, I sometimes feels like I have to learn the same lesson over and over and over. And God, you are very faithful and very patient with us. I, I thank you for the example that we have in Scripture of this rich ruler. And Jesus, in a masterful way, you cut through all of the pretext and you got right into the heart of the issue, which was this man loved and worshipped money. And he couldn't follow you. So Jesus, I thank you that you are our good teacher. And you are good because you are God in the flesh. And so when you teach us and say very hard things, that we don't have to go, well, actually, is he a good teacher though? Does he have my best interest in mind? You do. All of your teaching is for our good and for our flourishing. Um, but God, the truth of the matter is, is that all throughout Scripture we see that it's difficult for wealthy people to make it. Um, so often we see examples in Scripture that it's the, it's the losers of society that make it. The people who say, I got nothing to offer God. I am coming just a broken person. I am, I'm carrying nothing in my arms. I am empty and broken and I need Jesus. But God, I thank you that it, it's... It's not impossible with you, right? It might be on our own, trying to fit a camel through the eye of a needle, but with you, Jesus, you are able to take a heart of stone, a heart that loves and worships money, and you are able in an instant to soften that heart, to breathe life into us, to reveal the fact that we're worshiping money, and you can change our hearts and minds. Thank you, God, that you do. So I just pray, God, that as we think of the application of this case study, um, would we be honest with ourselves? Um, is money our God? Um, are we essentially worshiping money? And would we be willing to, to, to let go to follow you? Whatever that looks like. Again, I don't think it's prescriptive that all of us must sell everything right now. But whatever you would ask of us, would we walk away sad? Or would we say, no matter what I sacrifice for King Jesus, I know that I will be well taken care of in this life and eternal life to come.
So God, I just pray that you would convict us, even as we leave, help us to chew on these things and to think on them, and, but not just to, to gain more knowledge, but then we would begin to walk in them. And by living generous lives, God, that, that we would put to death greed and covetousness in our own hearts. So God, we just thank you for your faithfulness to us, and we pray all of this in your mighty name. Amen.